There's a statement that I heard a long time ago, and I find it to be true, is that you can impress people at a distance, but you impact them up close. We live in a day of Photoshop's airbrush and filters, where we manage our own brand on the social, and we wonder why we value authenticity so much. Well, we don't see it that much, so therefore when we do see it, we appreciate it. I appreciate Ellie sharing so transparently about her own heart and her mind, and she's going to share a song a little bit later on that actually she wrote, so I really appreciate that. But it literally leads well into the message because the reality is is that whenever you see somebody from afar, social media or whatever, you meet them one time, you can be impressed by them. You see them online, you see their online profiles, you can be impressed by them. But when you get up close, when you smell them, not literally, metaphorically, uh, but that could be true as well, uh, whenever you get close to them and you sense them and you get around them, what is it that you are left with, the impression that is left behind? Well, when you study somebody's biography, you hopefully will walk away seeing that not only are they awesome and worthy of a biography, but also will you notice that they are human. Uh, if somebody is all perfect and so forth, then I wouldn't go with that one. Uh, I like the way Oliver Cromwell did it in, in, in the 1700s, a general, a soldier, a, a statesman for Great Britain in the 1700s. That, but long before social media, long before airbrushing, and long before Photoshop, he actually had hired a person to paint his portrait. The deal was, it was a Mr. Lilly that he asked to paint the portrait. The deal was, is he made this statement. He says, Mr. Lilly, I desire that you would use all your skill to paint my picture truly like me, not flatter me. But remark all the roughness, the pimples, the warts, and everything as you see me. Otherwise, I will never pay you a farthing for it. I like that. I, I want to see the real me. I want to see the pimples and the bumps and the bruises and the scars along life. And whenever we're studying through the, the life of Abraham, I hope that you're not going to get the idea that he's some super saint out there, untouchable, that he's called the prince of God, he's called a friend of God, he's called the, the father of the faith of so many faiths of the world, that he's untouchable. But no, I hope that you see that he struggles with telling the truth, that he compromises his marriage. I hope that you see not just that he's a failure, but that he is not perfect because here's what you need to understand about being a friend of God. It's not about being perfect. It's not about perfection. It's about faithfulness. Faithfulness. That when you do fall down, you know how to get back up and you get back in the fight. That whenever you do fall down, you admit it and you get on the right track and you try to correct the wrongs. You own your mistakes. You step into the problem as we will see today. And again, if you have your Bibles, I know we've taken a week off with Gary Thomas in town, but I guess go back to Genesis chapter 12, where literally dropped into the narrative at the end of chapter 11 is Abraham. We have never seen him, heard of him, smelled him, or anything about him until chapter 11. And we drops on the scene as a, a citizen of the, or the city of Ur, of the Chaldeans, the, the Chaldean people, which is in Babylon, okay, which is, I know you know right where that's at. That is in modern day Iraq. And that's where he's living. 
And he's 75 years old and he's dropped into the biblical narrative. But God calls him, calls him out of this paganistic, mystical religion of the O. And I love it because just as God chooses us, God chose Abram. Same way, the same God that chose Abram chooses you and I. But I like it because I also see that, that God had a beautiful plan for his life. He wanted to bless him a number of times in that chapter, four or five different times in a matter of three verses. Does he talk about blessing? Does he say, I will, I will bless. I will bless you. I'll bless others. I'll bless those around you. And so that you can be a blessing. So we are blessed to be a blessing. Again, that's a message from a couple of weeks ago. But also God gave him some instruction in there. He said in chapter 12, verse 1 is probably, again, one of the most critical passages in maybe the Old, Old Testament. It's still what they use in bar mitzvahs of Jewish rituals to this day. They will read from Genesis chapter 12. This is what it says in chapter 12, verse 1. God gave Abram clear instructions. He says, go from your country. Go from Babylon. Go from Ur of the Chaldeans. Go from your country and from your kindred. That's your relatives, your uncles, your cousins, your nieces, and your nephews. Go from them and even your father's house. Don't even take your brother with you. Don't take your mother with you. Don't take your father with you. Now hang on to that. Because that's what God gave him as an instruction. And again, he was calling him out of the paganism. Sometimes we got to leave our family of origin if our family of origin is not right with God. So he's called out of his family of origin. The problem is, is that was a very clear instruction. And what Abram does is part of it. He is partially obedient. He is somewhat obedient. But how much obedience do you need to have before you're disobedient. Is 75 of 20, of uh, 75%, is that good enough? 90%, is that good enough? See, the problem is, is if we're 99.9% obedient, but we're not fully obedient to everything that God says, we set ourselves up, not because, because God's mean or we're, we're weak, but we set Satan an access point to us. And what Satan is going to do, where Abram is not going to be fully obedient, Satan is going to leverage that little small sliver of space, and he's going to expose him. Expose him. No, no, no. So again, chapter 12, leave your kindred, leave your father's house. Very clear, right? Four verses later, and Lot went with him. Just four verses later. All of a sudden, he's doing most of what God said, almost everything of what God said, but not everything. He takes a lot with him. And from this point forward, throughout the rest of the narrative of Abraham and Lot, he will be a thorn in his side. He will be a problem for the whole nation of Israel. In fact, it's from the lineage of Lot that the, Am- uh, that the Amorites and the Moabites will be born, which will end up being two of the greatest adversaries to the entire people of Israel. So, but it was because he was not fully, completely obedient. He was 
partially obedient. We have a definition for discipleship at Grace Point, and I don't go into the whole history of it, but about five years ago, we actually as a pastoral team, and even the deacons spoke into it, we said, we need to understand what discipleship is. And we landed on this statement, becoming fully obedient multipliers following Jesus. Now, there's a lot to it. I can't unpack all of that, but I do want to point out fully obedient. That if God has said something that you're to do, to follow up on, to obey, and you don't aren't fully obedient in that, then that's the point that you need to go back to. That's the, that's the origination that you need to write. You need to go back to that point where God was calling you to be fully obedient. Priscilla Shriver said it like this. Priscilla Shriver said it like this. Yesterday's partial obedience creates a staggering consequences in today's experience. So me partially obedient yesterday will only set me up for trouble tomorrow. I have to be fully obedient. Where is it that he's called me to? Last week, if you were with us, Gary Thomas was here. He shared on Sunday morning and Sunday night about Cherish. Saturday night, had an incredible time together. We actually had more people here for Saturday night for the conversation on when to walk away. There are just simply some relationships in life, some places, some people, some neighbors, some family members even, that we need to know when to walk away. Whole book written on that, whole conversation about that. Not going to relive that today, but it's just in God's sovereign planning of Gary Thomas coming, the topic and the passage that we're at today, that the title of my message today is how to walk away. That there's actually a way that we walk away between the two of uh, Abraham and Lot. We're going we're gonna to see that. So let me fast forward through this. So chapter 12 is whenever he first appears on the scene. He gives the promise from God. God says, if you'll go away and leave your kindred and your father and your, all that kind of stuff, I will bless you and bless you and so on and so forth. And then he goes to the land of Canaan. As soon as he lands in the land of Canaan, a famine breaks out. Isn't it just like God? He says, I'm going to bless you, but here's a famine. So that's exactly what happens. In verse 10, it says it like this, chapter 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt and sojourned there for the famine was severe in the land. So they had to get out of there. Couldn't survive, unsustainable life, had to get away. Well, Lot goes with him, family goes down there with him. What happens? Now again, look at chapter 13 um, and you find out because again, there's a whole story that I don't have time to go into in the verses that following. It's actually when when Abram compromises his wife. And again, we'll save that for another day. But let's go to verse, chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt. Verse 12 said they go down to Egypt. Now he's coming back from Egypt. I don't know how long he was there. I don't know how long it lasted. It was several months, maybe a couple of years. I don't know. So, but it was long enough that he amassed some wealth. He went down poor. He comes back rich. So Abram went from, uh, up from Egypt, and he and his wife and all that he had, and lots, there's Lot with him still, with him into the Negev. That's the southernmost part of Israel. So Abram was very rich. He goes down poor, comes back rich, in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Now to this very day, if you have a lot of livestock, a lot of silver, a lot of gold, you're considered wealthy. So nothing changed there. This guy has, he's making bank, Okay. And he journeyed on from the Negev, that's the southernmost part of Israel, as far as Bethel, hang on to that, as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been in the beginning, okay? Just remember that. He went to the place of Bethel where his tent was. That's going to come into play later on. 
was in the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had built an altar first. So again, in your own time, go back to chapter 12, read that when they were journeying from the north to the south, all along the way, Shechem, Bethel, he built an altar. Wherever Abram stops, he builds an altar. And that's exactly what he wants to do. He wants to get back to his roots. His roots are not just where his family was, it's where his faith is. Okay? And Abram called upon uh, the Lord and Lot, who was with him, went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now, again, notice the comparison contrast. Abram was rich in what? Gold, silver, and flocks. So he was rich in commodities. And Lot is rich in what? Flocks, herds, and tents. So he's a home builder. He's a, he's a developer of homes, maybe. So he's got his income source. They both have their income source so that the land could not support them. And they were dwelling together so that their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. In verse 7, there was strife. There was arguments. There was fighting. There was, there was one upping one another. There was, I, I, don't, I don't like you and I'm going to get even with you. Who was amongst the herdsmen of Abram and the uh, uh, herdsmen's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock? And at that time, the Canaanites and the parasites uh, were dwelling in the land. So here's this infighting. There's this something that happens in them. They are filthy rich. They went in famine, they come back rich. But their wealth, their prosperity, listen to this, messed with their tranquility. How many times have you seen people, as soon as a will is opened up, as soon as there's money in the family, you got along up for a long time and then there's money involved, all of a sudden brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles start fighting over the money, fighting over the land, fighting over the property. That's what happens here. The blessings become so great that they can't get along because they can't manage all their blessings. It's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a 21st century America story, okay? And I think about that. I think how it is that prosperity so often comes more important than family. Prosperity trumped family at this point. All the wealth, all the blessings that they had, and see, here's the reality, is I like what money can buy. But I love what money can't buy. Money can buy you a good time, but it can't buy you peace of mind. Money can buy you a person for a moment in time, but it can't buy you a companion for life. Money can buy you a house, but it can't buy you a home. Money can buy you an education, but it can't buy you wisdom. I like the things that money can buy. But I love what money can't buy. What about you? If you're not careful, you'll allow the stuff, the collections, the possessions, the wealth, the livestock, the gold, the silver, the houses, the tents, that, you, that, that will become your life and you will live and die for that all at the sacrifice of your own family. And that's exactly what crept in to the situation. So it's crept into the situation. It's divided the family. It's, it's, it's causing them now to fight amongst themselves. Now, I say all of that to say it's become so much so that we're going to have to deal with it. You got some families who want to sweep it under the rug. Some families want to go, uh, go around. Some families want to ignore it until the holidays come and then all hell breaks loose. You know, whatever the case may be. But the reality is it's still a reality. 
And you can ignore it and you can walk away from it, but it's still a part of the reality. So the best thing to do is to deal with it. How do you deal with it? Sometimes you got to walk away. How do you walk away? How do you walk away from a healthy, unhealthy environment? How do you walk away from an unhealthy job? How do you walk away from an unhealthy relationship? How do you walk away from a family, blood, generational thing? Some of us, all of us, have generational sins that have been passed down from generation to generation. But if you were to say, this generation, were to say to this generation, I'm stopping that sin here, you would upset the entire family order. And when you do that, you're going to be messing with the family system. How do you walk away from it? Because what we have here is we have blood relatives. This is Abram and nephew Lot, and they're walking together, but there's something happening that they can't get along. So how do you walk away? Three moves to walking away in a healthy manner. One is be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. Now, this is really hard in the midst of elevated emotions, in the midst of uh, maybe there's, there's money on the table, in the midst of, uh, of clout or status, or, or you got to win, you got to be right, you got to get the, the last word in. It's really hard to be a peacemaker. Peacekeeping's easier. Just keep your trap shut. Just don't say anything and we'll all just get along, right? No. Peacekeeping is one of those things that is a facade of peace, but it's not peace. Because what happens is I might get mad at Lori and I hold it in, or she might hold it in and we go out and kick the dog. So it's going to come out somewhere. It's going to come out on social media. It's going to come out with a friend. It's going to come out at work. It's going to come out somewhere. So peacekeeping is not what we're looking for. Peacemaking is what we're looking for. And that requires the hard work, the diligent work, the humbling work. That requires a lot more. It's why when Isaiah said, come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. God is calling us to peace, but that's going to cause us to sit down and have hard conversations and work for peace. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, strive, chase after, run after, use some energy, get in there, sweat some for peace with everyone and for the holiness. There's actually a tie between peace and holiness going together. In fact, Jesus will affirm this because he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the sons of God. Peacemakers, not peacekeepers. Peacemakers, again, get in and deal with the issue. Bring it up, not just to create tension, not just to to, to elevate the uh, problems in the home, but to deal with the issue. The elephant in the room, if you will. But there'll be times that it didn't matter you bringing it up you talking about it, instead of hiding it and walking away from it, you bringing it up, it's going to be irreconcilable. Even Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, he says, if it's possible, if it's, if it's even hopeful, prayerful, possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You do everything inside of yourself Not to assert your rights, not to get your opinion across, not to win the argument, but you do everything inside of you to bring peace to a hard, difficult situation. That's what we're called to. But even Paul 
recognizes that there's times, in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, just a few verses later, he says that there are times where there are certain people that cause division. And they create obstacles. Avoid them. Avoid them. It's okay to walk away. It's okay to separate. There are times for that, and it must happen from time to time. So here's a life principle for you, and you cannot apply this over every time you have a disagreement. Otherwise, you will eventually be alone in this world. Sometimes separation is the most peaceful thing you can do. Sometimes, not all the time, separation is the most peaceful thing that you can do. Whenever you look at Abram and Lot, Let's, let's look closer, closer at, at the narrative. Verse 8, and Abram said to Lot, now notice, the father figure, he's the uncle. Remember, if you go back to chapter 11, Hebron is, uh, is his, is, is his, uh, Haran is his dad's name. He died, uh, and this is uncle Abram, and with a nephew Lot. And so Abram, uncle, says to nephew Lot, let there be no strife between you and me. So now it's gone from the herdsmen. Now it's filtering down to the immediate family. Now it's coming up between the two, uh, the two family members and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. For we are kinsmen. We're related. We're supposed to get along. Let's not let. So here's the thing you got to understand about peacemakers. Peacemakers see the problem and say the problem. Okay, peacemakers see the problem and say the problem, but that's not it. Hang on to that, that thought. But you got to at least see it and say it. The reason I say that is because anybody can see a problem. All right, it takes courage to speak that problem. Hey, we got a problem. We're not getting along. This is going to create division. But also, you got to speak the solution. So you see it, you speak it, and then there needs to be a solution. Anybody can see a problem. A third grader can see a problem. You might work on a team with a bunch of third graders who will tell you about everything that's wrong in the organization. But a leader sees a problem and comes up with a solution. Because notice what he says in verse 9. He says, we're not getting along here. Is not the whole land before you separate yourself from me. Sometimes separation is the most peaceful thing you can do. Separate yourself from me. That's hard. This is family. We're supposed to get along. We're supposed to do life together. There are times in our family when the most peaceful thing we can do, the right thing we can do, is to walk away. How do we do that? That's what we're talking about. Is I'm first of all leading with peace. Uh, that peace is the aim of, of it all. I want to get to peace. Uh, at the end. When you look at the, if I, if I were to say, hey, who are the biggest people in the Bible? Well, you're going to say Jesus, number one, okay? But if you're going to say who's the biggest person in the Old Testament, who's the biggest person in the New Testament outside of Jesus? I'm going to go with Abraham. I mean, I don't think of anybody. David's big. Moses is big. He's obviously all great big people. But everything starts with Abraham, okay? So he's my biggest person in the Old, in the Old Testament. My biggest person in the New Testament is probably Paul, the apostle. 
Peter's big. Peter starts the first church and James is his brother. There's a lot of other arguments that you can make for John. John lived longer than anybody else, pastored more of the churches than anybody else. So there's a lot of arguments for John. But I look at Paul. He wrote 13 books of the New Testament. But when you look at two examples, Paul, and you look at Abraham, both of them had times of separation. Here we have the situation of Abram and Lot separating. But there was a time when Paul was being trained by Barnabas and John Mark was on the, in the missionary team and they were going out and John Mark flakes out and goes back home crying to mama. And, and then they go, get ready to go on their second missionary journey. And Barnabas says, yeah, John Mark's going with us. And he said, oh, no way. John Mark's not going. He's a quitter. We're not taking John Mark. And there's a line in the sand. And Barnabas says, no, we're taking John Mark. Paul says, no, we're not. And what happens is Paul goes off with Silas and Barnabas goes off with John Mark. In Hebrews, in Acts chapter 15, verse 9, says, There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated. Sometimes separation is the most peaceful thing you can do. It's never fun, it's never enjoyable, but sometimes it's just right. And you're going to have to make sure that you've done everything inside your flesh, in your body, in your mind, in your soul, that you've done everything possible to create peace, and then you understand what your next move is. Number two, choose selflessness over selfishness. Choose selflessness over selfishness. Now, you've got to remember, who's in the power seat here? Abram. He is the uncle, so that family position he is the leader who started this whole journey down to, from, uh, from Haran to, to Cana. So he's the positional leader. He's also the older leader. And in most cultures of the world, especially in this time, maybe hopefully still in our culture, we yield to the senior person because they've just got more life experience. Every sense of the word, Abram is the leader. But what does Abram do? Look at verse 9, the rest of verse 9. We need to separate yourselves. And then he points to Lot and he says, if you take the left, I'll take the right. If you take the right, I'll take the left. You choose. I'm in the power position, but I'm going to yield my power position to you, Lot, for you to choose. That is selflessness. It's not about you having your voice, your authority, and you exercising it. Sometimes your greatest exercise is to become like Christ and to not exercise your authority, your position, your rights. When you look at the life of Christ, he calls us in Philippians chapter five, chapter 2, verse 5. He says, you have the same attitude that Christ should have. We ought to have his attitude. Though he was God, he did not regard equality with God something to be to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privilege. He gave up his rights. He gave up his positional authority. He gave it up. He took the humble position of a slave. He was born of a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. There's nothing about Jesus' way that is conventional. That is the most unconventional, absurd, losing of position and power and authority in life that I can think of. But it's exactly what Abram did and it's exactly what Jesus did and he's exactly what he calls us to. Whenever we're going to give up our position of authority and we're going to be the servant 
in the relationship. Let me show you the profile of a selfish person. It won't take much. You can look at a lot, and it won't take much, and you'll start seeing it. So Lot, now again, just imagine with me where they're at. They're at Bethel. Remember they're at Bethel? That's where the tent was. That's where the the altar was. They're at Bethel. Bethel is elevated 2,886 feet above sea level. And what Abram does is he turns to Lot. He says, you choose right or the left. I'll go the opposite direction. What does Lot do? He looks down into the valley, the Jordan Valley, which is 1,361 feet. Why do I say that? Because he's up on the hilltop and he's looking down. He's going, where am I going to go? And he finds it. He finds the most fertile green pasture land. He says, I'm heading there. Look at verse 10. Notice he does not yield back to the senior. He does not go back to his uncle and say, hey, uncle, you're the person in authority. I submit to you. You're the leader. I'm the follower. No, no, no. He doesn't at all. He immediately turns on a dime. It says in verse 10, and he lifted up his eyes. He saw the Jordan Valley. It was well watered everywhere like the garden, uh, like like the, uh, the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Spoiler alert. Okay. Verse 11. So Lot chose for himself. All the Jordan Valley. Now notice these little little personal selfish moves. He raised his eyes. He saw. He chose for himself. Lot said he he took it. He, He journeyed as far as he's. Thus they separated from each other. So here, when you look at this, just real rapid fire, because this is not a story. This is not a sermon series in the life of Lot. They just run parallel. Again, partly because Abram didn't do what he was supposed to do. But notice, just jot these down. He looked towards Sodom. That's the first thing that that Abram, uh, that Lot did. He chose Sodom. He settled among Sodom. You ought to do a Bible study just this week on just the progression and the digression of how people move into sin. He settled among Sodom. He moved into Sodom. He became a part of the leadership of the Sodom city council, if you will. He was in the gates. It's basically, that was not, he's a gatekeeper. He was in the city council of that gate. Um, he compromised his family. He loves Sodom. The angels had to jerk him out before he would ever be willing to leave. He lost his wife to Sodom and his children replicated Sodom. Here's a very wealthy individual who's made it quite well in life. I mean, you chapter 13, he's got more livestock. He's got tents. He's got a booming business building homes, tents. He's building homes. He's got it going for him. They have to split and go different ways. But what you're going to see when you look from chapter 13 to chapter 19, you're going to see this continual fall of Lot where he's going to go down, down, down to where he starts off wealthy and put together and going, going strong, he's going to end up living in a cave, chapter 19, having incestuous relationships with his daughters. That's how bad it gets. Selfless, selfish. If you're going to walk away, take on the posture of a selfless individual. Take on the posture of a peacemaker. And then, number three, Trust God to make you whole. Don't worry about it, even in the score. 
Don't worry about making sure you get more than the other person gets, that your severance package is more than the last person's severance package. Don't, don't worry about trying to get everything even. Listen, Lot got best, but he also got the worst. Abram got last, but he also ended up first. When you look at the story, it's, it's incredible. And listen, it's not for us to even the score. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, for leave, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Listen, if there's some evening the score, if there's some injustice done, let God do it. You don't have to do it. Let God do it. He has a strong arm. He knows exactly when you're wrong, <laughs> and he knows exactly when the other person's wrong. And sometimes we're never wrong, and the other person's always wrong, right? If you look at this passage really carefully, you can't help but notice that in verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes. But in verse 14, the Lord lifted up Abram's eyes. So again, the selfless, the, the selfless, the selfish life. Listen, when God lifts up our eyes, when God's going to make us whole, he's going to make it right. He's going to fix it. He's going to not fix everything. Sometimes things, relationships are irreconcilable. But when he makes us whole, he's going to do it in the right way, in his timing, in his way. And here's a life principle for you. God does the best choosing when we leave the choosing to him. So let him choose. Lot chose. He got out in front. He said, I want that. God chose for um, for Abram. Look at verse 14. I, I don't think this is any coincidence. Verse 14. And the Lord said to Abram, but now notice when he said this to Abram. After Lot had separated. So Lot's off the scene. Lot can't hear it. They can't text ahead. He doesn't have any kind of voice recordings of this. It's like God just shows up in Abram's life. He says, I won't make it right. This is what I'm going to do. He says, I want you to lift up your eyes. I want you to look at the place where you are. I want you to look to the north. I want you to look to the south. I want you to look to the east. I want you to look to the west. Remember, they're in Bethel. He's looking all kinds of directions now. He says, for all that the land that you see, I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Have you ever tried to count dust? I mean, we have pollen in our house right now because we like our windows open. So just go in our house and count the pollen, the dust of pollen, the dust of the earth. That's how many kids you're going to have. So that one cannot count the dust of the earth. Your offspring also will be counted. Arise, walk through the length of the, of the land, the breadth of the land. Basically, he says, all of this I'm going to give you. Everything your foot touches, I'm going to give you. God is going to make it whole. I don't know when he's going to make it whole. I don't know how he's going to make it whole. But God has a way of doing the right thing. And it may not be whole like they got in the, in the, in the, in, in this settlement. That may not be what they get in, 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 in the life that you see. But there's a rightness about God that he's going to make it right. I go back 20 years ago and I, I've waited for 19 years to tell you this story. Kid you not. 19 maybe. 16 years. I've never told the story at Grace Point, so listen. 
It dates back that far because I've never shared this passage, and this passage comes in pivotal to it. So when we first started 20 years ago, actually it'll be 20 years ago this June, we're celebrating our 20th uh, birthday this, this summer. And when we came back for the first four years, we didn't have land. We didn't have a building. We were meeting in schools and cafeterias and, and, and conference rooms and homes and all over the place. And uh, we were setting up and breaking down, but I can tell you what I was doing. In between sermon prep and meeting with people and sharing and da-da-da, I was out looking for land. And listen, it was as hot around here for land then as it is now. They were selling land by the square foot. You know you're in trouble when they start quoting it by the square foot. And we had a window of space that we wanted to be here to here and here to here. And that's how far we wanted to be. And that was what I felt like God laid on our heart. And so I'm like, I'm literally knocking on farmer's doors. Say, hey, would you sell us a piece? I'd go in and have tea with them. I'd meet with them. Today. No, we're not going to sell our land. But I had some tea, you know. We met some people. But a hundred, I counted them, a hundred and fifty different parcels of land. I had real estate agents calling me. Literally, seriously, this is no joke. Real estate agents calling me. Hey, do you know anything about this land? Because I'm thinking about this land. And so I was like, I was in, this, in that fray of that. And then we found land, 17 acres of land, and it was in the window. And it was like God dropped it down. And we got it under contract, and they agreed. So we had a contract, we had land, we had a feasibility study. What's that mean? Basically, is, it gonna, is there a swamp underneath this? Can you build on it? It's a flat piece of land, okay? And so it was buildable. So we're like, okay, here we go. All of a sudden, I started getting phone calls from other churches because there was this one church that had bought land next to that two years prior to us. They hadn't built yet, but they were saying, hey, we don't want you to build there. I'm like, what? I'm like, is this real? I can understand if it was a gentleman's club or a bar saying we don't want a church right next door to us. But a church is calling other churches that are calling me. I have a letter still kept in my file in my office from, from leadership of higher ups saying it would not be good for you to build on that land. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. And so I met, so excuse me, back up. So I'm like, I go to bed one night and I wake up in the middle of the night and this passage is on my mind. Literally, Abraham yielding Lot the right to choose. And I knew exactly what I needed to do. I got two deacons. We met at Brahms. That's always a good place to eat for a burger. And we met with this pastor. He didn't bring any leadership. Met, sat down, and I asked him. I said, man, I'd love to be your brother. I'd love to serve right next to you. Your church is different than our church. You're going to reach people we're not going to reach. Can we do this together? Can we be on the same page and be kindred spirits together, working side by side for the kingdom of God? I thought that's a good enough speech. Anybody can say yes to that. He said, no. He said, I don't want to be your neighbor. I thought, okay, God, you spoke through your word. We backed out of the deal. We told the landowners it's not feasible for us to build. And it wasn't feasible because it was going to create conflict. And so we backed out with no other land. One week later, 
the owners of this big house in the back, that's not my house, okay? It's not my house. (laughs) This big house in the back called somebody who knew a church member, a founding church member, who called that church member and said, hey, there's 19 acres of land. We we, We had a contract for 17 acres of land. There's 19 acres of land on the interstate. The other one was a mile and a half off the interstate. On the interstate, do you want it? cost us about $10,000 more. Is the Pope Catholic? Absolutely, we want it. We got it, and we marched that land, and we released balloons on that land, and we we had our groundbreaking on that land, and that was God giving us the land. God does the, when God does the choosing, he does the best choosing. We have no regrets. That's, That's a God story, absolutely. And that's a God story completely. Um, verse 18, I, 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 I know I'm over time, but I, w- I got to show you verse 18 because it's not an accident. It's not an addendum. You remember what he did when he went through Israel the first time at Shechem and Bethel, he built an altar. He goes through down to Egypt. He comes back to Negev and, and then he goes up to, as far as Bethel because uh, why at Bethel, Beth- Bethel was where the altar was. He wanted to go back to the altar, back to where his tent was. His tent and his altar go hand in hand. Now, he's going to move because he's got some different land. He's going to move under some shade trees. In verse, chapter 13, verse 18. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled in the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. He hadn't been to Hebron before. And what did he do? He built an altar. Every time, you're going to notice, every time Abram builds, moves, does anything. He builds an altar. He moves his tent, he builds an altar. He goes to a new place, he builds an altar. He's constantly building altars because he realized this, that his faith and his family go hand in hand. Inseparable. Lot chose for Lot. God chose for Abraham. Lot lifted up his eyes the Lord lifted up Abram's eyes. Lot said, I, I'll take this. The Lord told Abraham, I'll give you that. Lot lost his family. Abraham was promised a family he couldn't even count. Now listen to this next one. Lot had a tent, but no altar. Abram had a tent and an altar. Wherever Abram went, he built an altar because he knew his relationship with God was the most important thing. What are you doing right now? You focus on building tents, collecting cattle, or you focus on building altars? Would you pray with me? Father God, sometimes life just doesn't make sense. Why kinsmen cannot get along? Why churches and people can't get along? Why your children can't get along, God? I don't know. Sometimes, Lord, it's best to just separate. But, Lord, I pray if we separate, we are the peacemakers. We will bend over backward. We will have done everything we could for reconciliation. We will have thrown every bit of ounce of energy that we can and resource into being people of peace. 
But Lord, if we're ever called to separate, may we always take the selfless position and then trust you to make us whole. God, you're good. Even when we don't understand you, you're a good, good God. Help us to trust you. Even when we're imperfect, help us to always be faithful. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ellie's going to sing a song. You might want to stay seated. You might have the song sung over. You might stand and raise your hand.